Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. And, and uh, expressed on earth. So look, if you will, Luke 19, starting in verse 28, and I'm going to read down a good bit, a few paragraphs as we go. So follow along if you would. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying him? The Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead went and found just as, it was, as they were told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples and be driving out those who are selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you... Leave us with, a, with a, an anchor, that you leave us with, with uh, words of truth and of grace that, that are more powerful than feelings, that are more abiding than, uh, than uh, uh, a tradition, that are more uh, uh, transformative than any, uh, than any method or process. Father, I pray that your words would captivate us and that we might hang on them just as the people in the day in which Jesus lived hung on your words. I pray that we might hang on your words and that we might be captivated by your truth and that it might be transformative in our hearts and then lead us to live lives that are, that are uh, in keeping with the way that you're bending and shaping and transforming the world around us. Do that for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I, was, uh, when I was a kid, and even to a certain extent now, when I was a kid especially, there were these, there were these puzzles and they, uh, that where, you, where they would give you two or three different pictures of like a, a squirrel or a picture of like a sunny day or a picture of a flower, and two or three versions of it. And then you would have to, the, the goal of the, of the little game was to then, you know, they'd say one of these pictures isn't the same as the others. So you have three of them. And then, you know, and, and I think even Sesame Street, had a little thing like that. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just isn't the same. 
There's a little ditty that goes along with it. I don't remember the whole thing. But the idea is to try to teach kids, and I was learning that through these little games, where you teach people that something, just because something looks the same doesn't mean it's the same. And that you, you look at it to find the little variations, the little aberrations that might draw your attention to something to highlight its difference. Now, that's a great skill. It's a fun little game to play. And Sesame Street was always so much fun. But there's a, there, it, it, the downside of it is it, I think that there's a sense where it, it, it grows into a sea where now my eye in my own world with my kids and the people around me, I catch all of the aberrations, which is not always the greatest, which is not always the greatest and most appreciated element. Is that I, you know, my, 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 my eye and my, my mind and my attention is drawn more to the aberrant elements, to things that's not the same, or that doesn't look it, or what's wrong with that? And, and I have to train myself to, to go the other direction. But in this, the reason I mention that is in this particular passage, when you look at this passage, there are a number of little aberrations. There are a number of little paradoxes, you might say, that strike you when you read this that are very informative and that are very valuable to, to, to gather because in the midst of this celebration, in the midst of all that's going on, the picture that, that Luke is describing here is that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at the, at the beginning of Passover and the people are just so thrilled about him and they've been following his ministry all these years and they've been watching and they've been rejoicing over the miracles of God and they are hailing him. They're using the words of Psalm 110, or Psalm 118, I'm sorry. They're quoting from Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're declaring that, that Jesus is the same kind of king that David was. The last time those words were mentioned about a person was in relation to David. And David was an immensely, I mean, I, it, for me to say that David was an immensely sort of iconic archetype king is almost to do, to do, um, to belittle it. David, King David, is by all measure the greatest king of all time and and his kingdom was a kingdom of peace. It was a kingdom of war. It was a kingdom of splendor. It was a kingdom of wisdom. There was, there was no greater king in the history of Israel, and I, I, I might say in the history of the world, than, than King David himself. And the people are declaring on this day, in, the, in this great thong as Jesus comes forward, we found the new David. And they're rejoicing about this experience. And in the midst of all of this wonderful celebration, there are a couple of aberrations. There are a couple of little notches, a couple of little paradoxes that I want to draw your attention to. First one that I want you to see is that while all this rejoicing is going on, everybody else is go everybody in the community, everybody in the world, and every in the little world that they were in there, everybody is celebrating, everybody is rejoicing, everybody is throwing down their cloaks, everybody is waving their palms, everybody is is kicking up their heels, as it were, at this experience, except for one person. Everybody's rejoicing. Everybody's ecstatic. And Jesus, verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. Everybody's rejoicing, except the person who they're rejoicing over. Everybody in the community is excited about something and, and is celebrating, but the person that they're celebrating is not celebrating. The person that they're celebrating is sad. And what is he sad about? 
What is the, there, now, there's a great paradox. Here's a, here's a, here's a great, you know, uh, a, a great sort of um, aberration in this experience that, that if you're not careful, you might overlook. And so in the midst of this great celebration, all the people are going, everything is great. David has come. We've got a new king. All is well with the world. And Jesus sees around him, and he says in verse 41, and he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. What was making him sad? What was, what was it that was making him weep? Not, you know, there's only, I, as, to my knowledge, there are a number of times that Jesus talked about having compassion. There are a number of times in the scriptures that Jesus, the gospels are full of expressions of Jesus' emotion. And in many ways, that's what makes Jesus real. If the scriptures didn't contain elements and stories and moments where Jesus emotion were expressed, we might think he was some sort of mechanical creature or something that was invented. But what brings Jesus a reality, what, Je- what brings Jesus a sense of humanity is when we see the depiction of his emotion on the pages of Scripture. And there are many places where Jesus talks about his compassion. Many times the, G- the Scriptures talk about Jesus in, in the variety of his emotion. But to my knowledge, there are three places where Jesus is said to be weeping. And the first one, in chronological order, is when one of his best friends dies, Lazarus. And he comes to the tomb, and Mary and Martha are crying, and Mary and Martha are having their own experience, and Martha's angry, and Mary's in grief, and Jesus responds to each one responds to each one in their grief in the appropriate emotion, and he brings truth, and he brings clarity and he brings hope to Martha and then he goes to Mary and what is he, the first thing he does with Mary is he weeps he weeps and why does he weep it says that his heart was in anguish his heart was uh, the, the word there anguish in John 11 is really uh, uh, reflective of not not anguish in terms of sadness but it, it's a it's poor translation most people most commentators believe it's a poor translation what it actually means is his heart was enraged his heart was enraged because death wasn't supposed to be a part of his plan. It's Jesus' plan that's being foiled by death. It's Jesus, not really foiled, but in the sense of that, you know, what, was, what was originally foiled was his children, his people, foiled his plan, didn't really, but broke the plan, didn't take it away, and his plan never included death. And yet here, his close friend Lazarus is dead, and Jesus' heart is enraged about it, and it leads him to tears. It leads him to be able to say to, 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 to Mary, the best response to this brokenness is sorrow. The best response to this rage is sadness. And that sadness and grief are not wasted experiences. Perfect son of God always gave the perfect emotional response to every experience he was in. You and I don't do that. <laughs> This week, you know, and, and, I, and, I've, and I've made a point of, of saying in some of the emails and saying to some of you personally and on the phone and through Zoom is that this, this pandemic that we're in creates a pall over our hearts and our experiences and the isolation creates a pall. And it stirs our emotions. And we can't trust what we're fe- thinking or feeling as easily. And so, and the way that we, the way that we often would bring those, those feelings and thinkings under, under their proper management is through community. 
And without community, we don't know what to believe. And so through this week, my, my emotions, you know, are, are ebbing and flowing and often too climactic at one end and too, and too uh, um, dystopian at the other. I was talking with a friend this week and they were saying how, you know, commenting how they and I are ha- generally happy people. We're generally happy people. And yet this thing has created an emotional pall with us. What must it be doing with those who aren't generally happy people? Jesus' response, however, always accurate, always the appropriate response for the appropriate thing. Why? Because he's perfect. Because he's not just perfect in his thinking, not just perfect in his doing, he's perfect in his emoting. Because every part of his motivational structure, every part of the internal part of him, his perceptions, where where do feelings come from? Feelings come from, often we think feelings come from circumstances. I was angry because you didn't pick up my laundry. I was sad because you forgot to remind me of something. When we attach emotional response directly to the experience, to the uh, circumstance, when no, those things are not connected, there's a whole little black box in the middle of those two things happening all the time. And what's in the, what that black box is called? The experience happens, and then it goes through the black box, and then out pops a feeling. Out, out pops a response, a reaction. What's that black box? What's that little, what's that little uh, me- mechanism through which our, our experiences in life pass through, which then creates a response, a feeling? It's called perception. And, and we live and die in perception. And that's where the gospel is most effective, is in perception. Jesus' perceptions were always accurately, perfectly, righteously on track. And so when he perceived a situation, he was perceiving it accurately, which then produced an accurate emotion. And in this experience, everyone else is rejoicing. And Jesus is going, that's not the proper response here. Why isn't it the proper response? Because Jesus said, he says, if you only you knew how to find peace, they were trying to find peace in, in, in such in such counterintuitive ways. They were trying to find peace the wrong way. And Jesus' response to their trying to find peace the wrong way was to to be sad. He wanted them to find peace the right way. He wanted them to find peace not through an earthly king, not through a new David, not through shaking off Roman rule. And, you know, you talk about people that were living under a pall, under an oppression. The people of Jerusalem in the day in which this was written were living under such an oppressive Roman rule. They were not just being sequestered voluntarily or with great, with great sort of um, uh, advice and counsel and guidance from the people around us. They were actually being imprisoned. Lock and key. And they thought the best way to find peace from that, victory from that, freedom from that, was through violent overthrow of a king, was through throwing off uh, oppression in a, in, a, in, a, in a cultural fashion, was to finally rise up and be on top and to have David come back with his mighty sword and with his, and with his proclaiming speech and with his victor's power. And Jesus said, that's not how you find peace. The way to find peace is, is in me. The way to find peace in your hearts, in our hearts, is not, is not through 
the self-effort and the, and, the, and the physical manifestation and through, the, and through the changing of circumstances. Even though I, we all go, well, as soon as we get through this pandemic, it's all going to be better. Or as soon as we get through these financial crises, then it's all going to be better. Or as soon as we find a way to get over the struggle that's in our family, or as soon as we get over the grief, or as soon as we get over uh, uh, the circumstances, as soon as we find a way, as soon as we get a house, as soon as we get a job, as soon as I get you know, on top, as soon as I get a promotion, as soon as I get more friends, as soon as I get through this thing with my mother. You know, we're all trying to find peace by the change of circumstances. And Jesus says, that's not the way to find peace. The way to have peace, and it brings him to tears to see us, to see his people trying to find, trying to bring peace to their lives through circumstantial change, through physical manifestation, through rising up in great power and getting on top of my game. And Jesus says, the way to find peace, he says, if you only knew, if you only knew where the peace, and I'm standing right in front of you, <laughs> I'm right here, I am the peace. So much the peace that that's his name, Prince of Peace. My, Isaiah told us that centuries, millennia before this time frame. Isaiah is saying he is the Prince of Peace. And yet we're always trying to find peace some other way. And it brings Jesus to tears. Because the way that he finds peace, which is also one of the, also one of the uh, other paradoxes, also one of the other aberrations is the way that he finds peace, the way that he brings peace is, look at how he comes into town. He says, go, when you get into town, go and find a young colt. Fresh colt, nobody's ever ridden it before, bring that here, that's going to be my way in a tiny little colt that's never been ridden. Couple of, a couple of aberrations going on there. The first aberration is, is that he doesn't come in on a stallion. He doesn't come in riding on a great steed with a sword in his hand and declaring victory like any other king would do. He comes in as a humble king. He comes in as a, as a stumbling king. He comes in as a king who is not self-aggrandizing. And he comes in as a king who, here's his peace being displayed even in his choice of animal. What would you expect a colt to do that's never been ridden if you tried to ride it. You'd expect that colt to throw you off, to buck you off. You'd have to tame the colt. You'd have to bring peace to the colt. You'd have to somehow control the colt before you could ride the colt. Jesus has no trouble whatsoever because when the Prince of Peace rides on the freshly minted colt, he knows that his proper rider is on board. And there's no... And what the animal knows is the same thing that the rocks know, what the Jesus tells the people. Another paradox. He tells the Pharisees, the Pharisees are like, can you tell your people to calm down, please? Disperse. Please disperse. There's nothing happening here. Please go back to your homes. We don't allow celebrations like this to go on in our community. Tell them to calm down. And Jesus says, I, can t I could do that. But if I, if I silence them, the rocks know what to do. There's a friend of mine, not, not, no, not, not friend of mine, let me restate that. 
um, I've met him a couple of times. I, and I sent, uh, I sent out a, a, a YouTube um, video of him a couple of weeks ago. His name's James Ward. He, he wrote another song called Ain't No Rock Gonna Cry In My Place. As long as I'm alive, I'll glorify his holy name. The, the song is based on a passage of scripture that talked about how if the, this, one of this, the one that Jesus is quoting here, that if the people of God don't cry out in praise, that the rocks will cry out. And what James Ward was saying in that song was, I'm not going to let a rock do what I should be doing. I'm not going to let a rock sing and do my job. I'm going to rejoice and let the rocks stay silent. I think what we see in this passage is, is that the animals know how to respond to the Prince of Peace. Rocks know how to respond to the Prince of Peace. The problem with creation isn't animals. The problem with creation isn't rocks. The, trees are clapping their hands. Rivers are, rivers are rejoicing. Mountains are bowing low. Rocks are crying out. These are the words of the Psalms that metaphorically, beautifully, poetically describe how the rest of creation understands what's going on and how to respond. What is the problem with creation? What is the problem with our world? It is, what, is the, what, what part of creation is the part that doesn't know how to respond properly to the grace of God and to the person of Jesus? His highest part of creation, all the lowly parts of creation, all the parts that were created on days one through five, they get it. But the part that broke creation, the highest part, the thing that resembled God the most, that contained his image, that's the part that broke and has no clue how to respond when they faced with a Savior. How to, how to respond to know where peace truly is. And that we don't find peace by greatness, we find peace by taking the low road. Jesus tells us that his kingship is a humble kingship. That the, 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 the way down is the way up. The way down is the way up. The, re, the road of lowliness, the road of humility, the road of, the road of, of vulnerability is the way to peace, is the way to to glorifying God and to finding hope in our world. These are the aberrations that we don't see. It's a radical piece that even, people, that even the rocks can sing about. The last paradox that we see here, in light of this very thing we're talking about, Jesus is weeping for the people that they can't find peace the way that they're intended. They're always trying to find it outwardly rather than through him. And that that peace comes through a humble process rather than an exalted process. And that it's a radical peace that even the rocks would sing about if we kept silent. And the reason that we don't get it is because one day we're rejoicing and the next day we're crawling out for his crucifixion. The reason we don't get it is because our hearts are fickle. Seven days less than seven days, five days, four days from this day, four days later, the same people that are crying out, hallelujah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Rejoice in what he has come. Peace in heaven and on earth. The new David has arrived. Four days, five days later, crucify him, crucify him. We 
want Barabbas. Oh my gosh. And we point the finger at those people every Good Friday in our hearts. There's a, there's a, there's a dismissiveness. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a pride in our hearts that we point the finger at them and don't realize that the same fickle heart resides in every human heart, every human being. You and I are, are equally capable of that fickleness. And all through this week, how much fickleness has your heart gone through this week? How much up and down and in and out and belief and unbelief, trust and then, and then doubt, fear, and then rejoicing and then anger at him. Your hearts are just as fickle as these people. And yet the Prince of Peace says, I am your peace. The Prince of Peace says, I am here for you. There are, days, there are days when I am, when I can be inconsolable in my sadness or in my grief or in my anger or in whatever I'm experiencing and, and my wife bears the brunt of that and my children bear the brunt of that and the closest friends in my life bear the brunt of that and here's the thing, um, and I'm happy for them to bear the brunt of my inconsolability time and time and time again. But if you, if you are inconsolable to me and, and I experience your inconsolability, your inconsolableness twice, I'm I'm done. Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the people are inconsolable in their fickle hearts and yet he comes and he weeps. He weeps and then he dies. I told you the first time that Jesus says that Jesus wept specifically was at Lazarus' death. The second time, it's right here. You know the last time we see recorded in scripture that Jesus wept? Five days later. He's in the garden. And he asked his best friends to sit and be with him while he went off and prayed about this thing he had to do. He had to take the lowest of lowest roads in order to bring us peace. And he wept about it. And he wept to his father. And he wept in the presence of his friends. And his friends fell asleep. And his father said, well, his father said nothing, actually. Because when Jesus cried out to his father, he, and he wondered where he was. And in the silence of that moment, he weeps at the loss of his father, but at the finding of his children. Because at that moment, he captures them back. At that moment, he ends the war and brings peace so that he can then translate it to his people who are equally willing to take the low road of faith to find in him what they cannot produce in themselves. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you took this road for us to bring us peace and to bring us rejoicing. Lord, we, Lord, this passage tells us that whenever you show up, you bring rejoicing, you bring hope, you bring life, you bring 
opportunity. You bring celebration. This is the benefit of your coming. And Father, I pray that as you come into our hearts, that you not only convince us of our fickle hearts, but that you, that, and that you convince us of, of how we are finding the wrong peace in the wrong places, but that when we find our peace in you through the lowly road, it does lead to rejoicing, to a, to a sense of confidence, to a sense of hope, to a sense of celebration, that no matter what we're experiencing, that I carry peace with me, that circumstances don't have to change in order for peace to occur, but peace is welling up inside of me despite and in the face of my circumstances. Lord, do that in the hearts of your people. As fickle as we are, change us. In Jesus' name we pray.